during the last um, uh, 18 months that I was working on this uh, series, uh, The Life of Christ, the book, and, and other things. I uh, really starting with my sabbatical, I expanded my study beyond books to include um, art and uh, music in an effort to better uh, know the God we love and serve. And uh, that song was one that um, I just came across in my study and thought that, uh, as she did, that Sarah would be um, beautiful in singing that. So uh, thank you, Sarah, and the choir. And it's great to have uh, so many musicians and so many different styles of music that we can, uh, that can, that can help us join the 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 chorus of angels uh, that continue to um, sing the praises of our risen Lord and Savior. And thank you to uh, the Goods for being here, but thank you more significantly for what you're doing. May the kingdom of God push back the darkness uh, through your work and um, appreciate you. Well, as David has already mentioned, today we, uh, we are wrapping up this series on the life of Christ, and in doing so, we are uh, going to look forward. We have been looking backward. Uh, we have been looking at uh, the life of Christ 2,000 years ago and the events surrounding the early church, and we now look ahead to the celebration, to the, the party, the great banquet, the wedding feast. We look ahead uh, to the celebration of Christ that began with his ascension following um, the 40 days after his resurrection. He ascended into heaven. Uh, the party began. The victory celebration began. It will go to a whole new level uh, following his return and all of the uh, events that unfold uh, at the end of the age. The book of Revelation is uh, our guide for this. So the Apostle John is the conduit of the book of Revelation for us, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the last book in the New Testament. Um, it is uh, sort of chiefly two things. It's a collection of seven letters that were dictated by Christ to John to be directed to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These are letters of uh, admonition and exhortation. They are letters telling people to press on and promising them that if they do, there will be uh, a reward for them. Uh, it is also then uh, a series of fantastic visions uh, that are at once both uh, dark and frightening and uh, wonderful and sublime. We see reports of Christians being martyred, of everyone facing the wrath of God. We also get a description of a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, the book of Revelation is a deeply devotional book. Uh, it, is, it is, again, it is discouraging and frightening. It is ultimately encouraging. And, of course, it is also a bit confusing. Uh, not in the end. Right? If we're at point A and we are headed to point C, uh, we got a good handle on A and we get a lot of information about C. So we know how this ends. 
we can read the last chapter, right? We, we get that God wins, Christ wins, there is a celebration, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. There is a, there is a certitude about that. It's, it's all good for everyone who is in Christ. We understand C. It's B that is a little bit uh, vexing. The sequence of events, the timing of events, what exactly is going to happen, that is the topic of lots of debate and discussion. And it is confusing in part because the book of Revelation is written in a genre that we're not very good at. Um, The Bible is written in a number of different genres or literary styles. There's history, there's discourse, there's narrative, there's poetry and parable, and there's uh, uh, proverb and psalm. And, and we move pretty easily through all of those. I mean, we, we move easily through lots of different writing styles every day. When you pick up the paper, you intuitively know that you read the headlines differently than you read the comics, differently than you read the the ads, you just get that you understand and interpret these things differently. Furthermore, you know that although the paper today said that the sunrise would occur at a certain time, that uh, it doesn't really mean that the sun will rise at that time. We know that the sun doesn't rise, that the earth rotates on its axis. And so you just understand that that's a figure of speech And we understand that there are figures of speech in this book. In Isaiah 55, it says, The trees of the field will clap their hands. We know that the trees aren't going to grow hands and clap them. We we get a whole lot of what goes on, and we know how to interpret various books of the Bible. When it comes to the book of Revelation and other parts of some other books where there is a, a prophetic tone to them, in the book of Revelation, there's lots of pictures that are given to us. Uh, And there are some pictures that are given to us to help us interpret other pictures. (laughs) We're not very good at that. Uh, Now, some people think that they're good at that, and uh, some people have got this all mapped out, but the the fact is, it's it's a challenging task. Uh, Some of it's challenging because we're not entirely certain when the book of Revelation was written. Some say it was written in the 60s, Some say it was written in the 90s. And that actually matters because in 70 A.D., Jerusalem fell. The temple was destroyed. All kinds of things happened, right? The the Romans were said, enough, forget it. We're tired of these revolutions that are happening with the Jews. And so they came in and they tried to rip everything apart and they told the Jews to take off and they renamed the land Palestine and they said, you're gone. We're not going to keep doing this. Uh, So those who believe that the book of Revelation was written in the 60s understand a lot of the descriptions of what was going to happen to be predictions about things that were fulfilled in, this, in, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Those who believe that the book of Revelation was written in the 90s say, no, everything is yet to be fulfilled. So that's a challenge. The biggest challenge that we face when it comes to the book of Revelation is that we try to get it to say things that it doesn't say. We want answers that God doesn't give. Uh, And so it is, in some senses, deliberately 
obtuse. It's not that God couldn't be clearer. It's that he didn't set out to be clearer. So we saw a little bit of this when we looked at the Messianic prophecies that we were given. And I said, you know, hey, from where we stand today, we read Genesis 3.15, this, this prediction that the seed of woman is going to destroy evil, and we get that the seed of woman refers to the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. It makes sense. But it's an altogether different thing to have been back then and to hear seed of woman and to, to know what that meant. Prophecy is easier to look at going backwards and to see its fulfillment than it is to say, this is how it's going to be fulfilled. And additionally, what Jesus will say in Mark 13 and, and in Matthew 22, nobody knows the day, nobody knows the hour, right? Not even the angels, not the Son of Man. It, and, and it is as if a, a, the owner has gone and he's left people in charge and you don't know when he's going to come back. And so you have to be watchful. You have to be doing your job all the time. We don't do well when we know exactly how things are going to unfold. Right? We tend to wait until the last minute. Uh, we tend to push, you know, put some things off. We don't always do well with uh, advanced information, and so we don't get a lot of that information. That said, I'm not suggesting we don't study these passages. We should. I do. And we pray for the return of Christ. And, and we look forward to that day. I mean, that is our assignment. I'm simply suggesting that we do so with a bit more humility than occasionally we see. There, again, there are those who, who set the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel alongside the newspaper and say, here is how it is the dots connect. And they may be right. Uh, but I have got a shelf full of books in which people have done it in the past, and they've been wrong. And in fact, when you look at church history, it's humbling because people have consistently uh, been wrong. In fact, when it comes to uh, church history, what we see is that there have been some big uh, different understandings of Revelation chapter 20 that set us on different interpretive frameworks for the way things will unfold. Revelation 20 uh, refers, includes a reference to the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we refer to as the millennium. Some people early on believed that uh, as the gospel was preached and people came to faith and they began to follow Christ and live out the example of Christ, that things would get better and better and better, and then eventually they would be so good that they'd virtually be perfect, and there would be a thousand years of virtual perfection, and then Christ would return. As a matter of fact, uh, in, more, in some liberal circles, this was, uh, this was embraced, and the Christian Century, a leading sort of mainline uh, publication, mainline church publication uh, that's published here in Chicago, goes all over the world. It's called the Christian Century because in the late uh, 1800s, okay, the late 19th century, it was believed that the 20th century would be the Christian Century. Because more people were coming to faith and the 20th century would be perfect and there would be no wars and we would care for each other and honor each other. And instead what we see is World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and, 
And what we see today is that slavery remains a problem, right? No, there's not many people thinking that, that uh, things are going to unfold like the post-millenarians used to think. There's another group called the amillenarians that read the Revelation 20 passage and believe that that thousand-year reign of Christ is to be understood more symbolic of what is going on in heaven right now. And then there are premillenarians, and most evangelicals are premillenarians and believe that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And there's different understandings about what comes next based on uh, Christ's return and how much suffering the church will go through. So when you read church history, you understand that we've had some uh, challenges getting this right. Not C, right? Not the end. <laughs> there's, there's no problem there. It is clear. It's just we're at A, we're headed to C, there's just a lot of debate and discussion about B. And so... Um, I just say we need to study, we need to pray, we need to look forward to see uh, and be a little bit less enamored with B. To put this, in, put this to bed, one last uh, illustration, um, a marketplace illustration. There are many who advocate uh, market timing, right? And they say, uh, look, I've got complicated formulas and predictions and computer models, and they say this is where the Dow is going to be in two minutes or in two days, and you buy and sell based on, on these formulas. And there's, a, there's a, a different strategy that says, no, look, you buy and you, you look at it every few months, maybe, but you just don't keep paying attention to what's going on. Just buy and hold. Um, I would say this. Right? The Dow, in this illustration, the Dow is going to a million. Okay? We know what C is. So, uh, just buy and hold, right? Just get in the market. Just invest. Just, and don't be trying to go figure out what's going to happen between now and then. That's not our assignment. Our assignment isn't to get the date right. It isn't to solve the puzzle. Our assignment is to proclaim the good news and engage in good works. Our assignment is to go live like Jesus. Our assignment is to adopt the values that are coming with the kingdom of God and live them out today. That's our assignment. So we focus on that. We focus on C. So what do we know about C? Well, I want to read uh, two passages for you. They come out of the book of Revelation. Uh, The first one is found in Revelation chapter 11. I am going to read verses 15 through 18. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 18. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. 
The second passage is in Revelation chapter 19. Here I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now, some of you may recognize these passages as being among the key passages for Handel's Messiah. Others of you would have picked up on that had I read these passages in the King James. Uh, There's a couple verses that are key in Revelation 11. It's verse 15, and in the King James it reads, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the uh, passage in Revelation 19.6 is, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Um, Handel didn't actually... uh, select the lyrics, he wrote the musical score. Uh, Charles Jensen uh, selected the lyrics. Again, all of Handel's Messiah is just uh, words out of uh, Scripture. And um, there's, uh, there's just a, a whole lot that goes on behind this. Many people think of it as a, uh, a Christmas song or an Advent song. It wasn't written uh, that way at all. Uh, it, was, um, it was written in fact, for a, a charity event, Handel had a, had a celebrated musical career, but it uh, began to unwind on him. And he took the commission for this when he was depressed and, uh, and in debt. Um, and he wrote it for a charity event, um, 1742, in Dublin. It was uh, for debtors. Um, In the 1740s, in in much of Europe, if you went into debt, you went to prison. Couldn't pay your debt, you went to prison. And so there were uh, sometimes charity events to try and help people get out of prison to pay off their debt so they could be uh, they could be released, and he wrote this um, for that. And it, it is, he wrote the music in three weeks, uh, which led uh, Jensen, um, the man who had, who had sort of commissioned this and selected the lyrics, was a little miffed by that. He figured that meant it wasn't very good. Um, and he, um, he, he wrote it, um, again, he, or he played it, he, he introduced it to much criticism. Uh, the church thought it was too theatrical, uh, the theater thought it was too preachy, and uh, so there was a lot of opposition to it. But it, it did relatively quickly become a piece of music that enjoyed uh, the kind of notoriety that almost no music has enjoyed. It's been played every year uh, since 1743, I believe, and uh, performed by choirs as big as 10,000 people. And uh, everybody stands during uh, Hallelujah Chorus because when King George first heard it, he stood. And so, of course, if the king stands, everyone else has to stand. And so um, th- there's, there's a lot that goes on behind Handel's Messiah. And, and we're going to sing uh, the Hallelujah Chorus here. Uh, we're headed towards that as our closing, as our closing number. Um, but I'm more interested at this moment in... Th- the takeaway from these verses. 
Because they tell us something that should change the way we think and live. They are describing C. They are describing the end. And we need to live today in light of the promises that we are given of Christ's future rule and reign. Because it changes everything. So I want you to, I want you to understand seven things as we think about the end. First of all, history is headed somewhere. We're not in some circular pattern where we're just going to keep repeating ourselves. History is linear. The events that are unfolding are leading towards the events that God has superintended. He is sovereign. We are marching towards the consummation of the ages. His plan is going to be fulfilled. History is leading to a climax. And That climax is when, point number two, the one who came in weakness returns in power. The one who came as a child, who suffered on our behalf, who died in our place, who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to to be seated at the right hand of God in power, that same one who came initially in weakness and humility is going to return in power. He's going to return as king and judge. He, he, is, he is going to come back. Virtually every book in the New Testament looks forward to Christ's return. There is some comment about the fact that he is coming back. And this shapes how we live this life. Point number three. Uh, when he returns... He will put things in order. Uh, The opposition will be silenced. Right now, um, we live in in the the time between. Christ's death dealt a, a definitive and final and decisive blow against evil. There's no question as to what is going to happen. It was a shocking thing, right, when Jesus won by dying. Unthinkable. And, and catches the enemy in, by surprise, right? I, I, love the, I love the way Tolkien develops this in The Lord of the Rings. When Saruman is looking for the ring, right, and the big battle is happening, Saruman does not imagine that the ring will be delivered and turned over. He can't imagine that anyone would give up the power. He can't imagine anyone not clinging to these things. And, and Christ doesn't cling to his rights and privileges. He dies in our place. That's it. He pays our penalty. Game over. But he continues to run. He continues to, to exercise influence in this broken world at the time. But when Christ returns... His kingdom will be established. The effective domain of his rule will be dramatically expanded, right? His will will be done. That's what what a king does. A a kingdom is the area where, where the king's will is done and God's will will be done. And so we will see a, a definitive change as, as Satan is bound 
and the values of the kingdom of God spread. Number four, the dead will rise. Um, at the time of our death, today, our body goes into the ground, our, our soul or our spirit uh, lives on in the presence of Christ if we are believers. Uh, that's not our ultimate state. Right? Our hope in the end is for the resurrection of our bodies, a new restored body. That's, that's sort of the scandal of all this, right? That's the unthinkable thing of all this. The tomb, Christ's tomb was empty because Christ rose from the dead. If the disciples had simply been saying, Jesus lives on, right? His body is still in the grave, but he lives on as a spirit. That's not a big deal. That's not what they were saying. Christ is the firstborn of the dead. Right? He, is, he was blazing the trail, which is a new physical body. And that's what we affirm when we affirm the Apostles' Creed. Right? The last part of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. And life everlasting. We get a new body. Our, our spirit and our bodies are reunited. And with that, we then stand before God and are judged. This is the next point. We are all judged. We all stand accountable for our lives. Much in our culture today suggests that nothing ultimately matters. Right, that um, we're sort of free to do whatever because there, there are no absolutes and nothing is going to matter beyond this life. You know, the Bible says that everything matters. The Bible says that we were made in God's image and we matter. Everything about you matters. It matters to God. And we are stewards of, of opportunities and gifts and resources, and all of that matters to God. And so we will stand accountable for our lives, the decisions that we make. Amos 4.12 says, prepare to meet God. All of us will stand before God. Now there are two judgments that get described in the book of Revelation. The Bema Seat of Christ, which is the judgment of Christ's followers. And and. We don't have to plead our case. We don't have to plead the fifth because Christ is our defense attorney. And, and Christ represents us. Christ is, we, we stand behind Christ. And, and our sins have been paid for by Christ. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's what happens to people who pledge their allegiance and their life to following Christ. He represents us before God. Now, we are still, there's still some judgment that, that happens. And there are rewards for people who have been particularly faithful and striving to be Christ followers. So there's, there's one judgment for those who stand in Christ. There's a second judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment for those who do not have Christ's defense, who stand accountable for all that they have done before a holy God. And this is a terrifying thing. 
Well, number six, judgment is followed by the banquet, by the celebration, by the party. Right? Those who are in Christ are, are welcomed, into, welcomed into glory. And, and the language at that point that is used to describe the place that Christ has prepared for us gets nonsensical uh, because words do not, are not able to describe um, what it looks like that God has prepared. Now, here's, here's what we need to know. This, um, this banquet, this celebration, um, this wedding feast is uh, described in several places in the book of Revelation. It is also foreshadowed with the Lord's Supper. You, you may remember a while back I said that the Last Supper, okay, which took place on the Thursday night, after Christ was about to be betrayed, but he, he gathers with his disciples in the upper room. The, that last supper uh, is, the, is an inflection point between the Passover meal that the Jews have celebrated for a thousand plus years, where they get together and they, they sacrifice the lamb and they follow this very carefully scripted liturgy to remind them of God's deliverance of them, right? The, the Last Supper stands as the transition between the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate on a monthly basis. Okay? When Christ is at the Last Supper, he goes off the script that had been followed for over a thousand years because he takes the bread and he says, look, this bread is, is my body, which is given for you. Right? And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Right? He is saying, this was actually not about a lamb at all. It was about me. I am the true lamb. I am the Passover lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. This you've done for a thousand years, not ultimately looking back, looking forward to what I'm going to do. And that then launches... The, the sacrament of Holy Communion, which we celebrate on a monthly basis. Jesus said that night, he says in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, he says, I have longed to gather together with you. So this is the, the, at the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. It was not just looking back to what Christ had done, would do in the Last Supper, but we don't just celebrate the Lord's Supper looking backwards to what Christ has done. We actually also celebrate it looking forward to its fulfillment in heaven. To the great banquet in heaven. To the celebration of the Lamb of God that takes place in heaven. And this is where some of this language gets, gets brought in in Revelation chapter 19. Because it is a wedding feast. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given to her to wear. In, in the first century, weddings took place in stages. The first stage was when the, the families of the bride and the groom would get together and would agree 
on a, a bride price, and would, there would be a pledge that would be made. So the bride would actually pay, the bride's family would pay a dowry to the groom's family or to the groom themselves. And from that point forward, the couple was betrothed. They're not, it's very much like engagement, except it's a little bit more uh, significant. It's a little bit more weighty even than engagement. Sort of in one sense, they're, they're married, but it will be a year later until the second phase takes place. At some point, the groom, along with uh, a number of his friends, will parade to the bride's house at night. They will come uh, with torches. They will make a lot of noise. All this gets alluded to with the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. They will, they will show up and they will take the bride, right? And the bride usually wanted to know when this was going to happen because then they're going back to the groom's house for the banquet, for the party, right? For the, the next stage of the wedding. And this party... This banquet could go on for days. Well, understand the the illusions that are being made here, right? The the bride of Christ is the church. The, the, The negotiations have taken place. The price has already been agreed on, although shockingly, as opposed to the the bride's family paying it to the groom's family, Jesus pays the price. And He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and he said he will come back to get us and to take us to where he is. And then there is the party, right? The celebration, the great banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb that takes place in heaven. We are headed in that direction, right? That's see, that's coming, that's the promise. And we don't know what the next step is. We don't know when the next step will happen. Quite honestly, for most of us, the next step is that we die. But Christ has said he's coming back. And and it depends a little bit on your interpretive framework, your hermeneutic in terms of what needs to happen for that to happen or what the next thing is. Okay, Again, that's B. We're not entirely certain about B, but what we're told is C is happening. And and C changes everything. What we're being told, right, is, is that Christ will return. He is coming back for his bride. And, and what this means is, is that we not only know how the story ends, but we also have a description of of a loving groom, right? I mean, he's coming back for those that he desperately cares for. In this series, I have described Jesus as the best and and most significant person to ever live. And I said he's given us the greatest ethical system ever. And, And we've looked at the power that he has that no one has had, power over sickness and death and evil and nature. And we've looked at how he's perfectly fulfilled all the plans. We have celebrated the life of Christ. We also need to see Jesus as the most loving, gracious, kind, life-giving person of all. And he is coming back for us. 
And that changes everything, right? When you live in light of that, when you live in light of that eternity, it ought to change the way we live today. And that's the promise. That's the story. That's the, that's the narrative that flows through this book, and that is what is to inform how we think and live today. We are to, we're to say, when it's all right, it looks like this. This is C. This is what. And so I'm going there as much as I can now. I'm, I'm going to honor Christ as king now. I'm going to do everything I can to, to carry out his plans now. I'm part of expanding the kingdom of God now. And I know that at one point, definitively, it will come, and I'll be ready. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter if I know when he's coming. If I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing the right thing when he comes. And so we have a loving, gracious Lord who has promised to come back for us and who has said to us, until then, right, proclaim the good news, engage in good works, and I will come back for you. Let's live in light of that promise. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the plan. Thank you for the book. That while it doesn't answer all our curiosities, it tells us everything that we need to know. I pray that, um, that we will be found faithful. I pray for, for a greater glimpse of the glory of heaven, for a greater certitude for myself and for others about what this all looks like, that we can lean into that even more uh, today, right now. Embrace the kingdom. And we pray this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.